There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. I'm going to ask a very curious question. Was Jesus a yogi who taught his disciples yoga? Now, when I was a yoga teacher in 1970, I might have asserted that. I might have implied that as I taught over 300 students at four universities, the principles of this approach to religion and spirituality. But now that I'm a Christian, I would have a different response. Well, first, let me ask the question, what is a yogi? A yogi is a person who is accomplished in the study of yoga and one who often transmits that knowledge to others. Well, the second question is, what is the meaning of yoga? Well, yoga is a Sanskrit word, and Sanskrit is a language of the ancient Indian subcontinent with a 3,500-year history. It is the primary liturgical language of Hinduism and the predominant language of most works of Hindu philosophy, as well as some of the principal texts of Buddhism and Jainism. And the word yoga comes from the Sanskrit word yug or yuj, that's Y-U-G or Y-U-J, which means, and this is very important, yoke or union. So the word yoga means yoke or union. And the implication is the practice of yoga is the effective means of bringing you into a union with the impersonal oversoul referred to as Brahman in Hinduism. Now, yoga philosophy is one of the six branches of the Vedas, which are considered to be, by Hindus, one of the oldest world scriptures. Now, the first branch of the Vedas is called Vedanta, which explains that all knowledge and experience comes from one underlying consciousness or reality. As I already mentioned, it's an impersonal force called Brahman, a cosmic level of consciousness, not a personal being. The second branch of yoga philosophy is called Sankhya, which describes how the one consciousness, the underlying impersonal level of consciousness, universally differentiated itself to appear as many things, but it's all illusory. The third branch is yoga philosophy, which describes the processes needed to realize our unity with this one underlying consciousness so that we may free ourselves from the suffering felt through, watch this now, our perceived separation. See, in Hinduism, you're not really separate from God. You just wrongly perceive that you are separate from God. And in order to overcome that wrong perception, you practice yoga to come to a point of realization 
of your inherent oneness with God. Now, if yoga means yoke, well, that makes me immediately think of one of the most beloved passages of Jesus' teaching where he uses a similar analogy. He said in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, when I was a yoga teacher, I would take that passage and say what Jesus really meant was my yoga is an easy approach. And the burden of practicing my yoga is light compared to others. Well, what did Jesus mean by that statement? Is it a subtle, mysterious unveiling of the fact that he was a yogi and he was really training his disciples in Eastern mystical practices? Well, let's inspect the various types of yoga in order to see if they are in alignment with Jesus' teaching and if Jesus' teaching is in alignment with these eight principal schools of yoga. And of course, I, I can't go into a depth of explanation in all of these, but I do want to touch on each one to show the connection to this kind of terminology. Now, the first most basic level of yoga is called Hatha Yoga, and that's primarily made up of physical exercises called asanas and breathing exercises called pranayama. And the purpose behind these exercises is a preparation for meditation. They're not just for physical welfare. Many of the Hatha Yoga postures are actually worship postures to individual deities. I'll do an episode of Revealing the True Light on that very subject sometime in the future. Also, the concept of breathing exercises is enhanced by the idea that everything is permeated with this divine essence called prana. And so if you intensify your breathing and if you're conscious of your breathing and if you focus on your breathing, then you're focusing on pulling out of this air that comes into your lungs, this divine essence that will help you heighten your consciousness or your awareness. Well, I do not believe in pantheism. No longer do I believe that the universe is an emanation of the divine so that everything has this divine essence. So breathing is not going to aid you in coming into God consciousness. In fact, I have a favorite use of an acrostic, Y-O-G-A, that spells yoga. You only get air. You cannot approach God with that kind of mechanical approach to breathe your way into a relationship with God. Of course not. It's not from the lungs. It's from the heart that you express worshipful love toward him. Also, Hatha Yoga is geared toward the opening of something called the chakras, which are supposedly seven energy centers in the body. The one people are most familiar with is called the third eye. And supposedly 
through Hatha Yoga exercises, these energy centers become more activated so that you can ascend or transcend to higher levels of consciousness through more developed forms of yoga. Now, did Jesus teach Hatha Yoga? No, there's not one place in the Bible where he led his disciples in breathing exercises or yogic postures in order to worship various deities or to just tone up their physical bodies in preparation for meditation. He never taught any of that, not once. Now, the second kind of yoga I want to touch upon is karma yoga. And this is the yogic system that is based on the idea that every action causes either good or bad karma, an equal and opposite reaction. Furthermore, the soul of a person remains locked in a series of reincarnations until all negative karmic debt is paid off. So the object of karma yoga is to live such a perfect life that there is no karmic indebtedness. And at that time, release, which is called moksha in Hinduism from physical existence, is finally achieved. And you can ascend up to higher levels or evolve to higher levels of existence on higher spiritual planes. Well, Jesus did not teach karma yoga. Number one, he did not teach that salvation comes by human effort, by working your way to perfection. The Bible clearly says, by grace you are saved through faith. We are not called upon by God to somehow make amends for all of our sins and errors until there's a complete equal payoff. They're washed away by the blood of Jesus when we set our faith on the cross. And when we expect the salvation that he purchased there for us to be applied to our lives. Well, I know there is a scripture that many times people involved in yoga and Eastern religions quote in order to make Christianity sound supportive of this concept of karma. It's Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 that says, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. However, that statement describes a general truth that is somewhat predictable concerning life and relationships in this world. In other words, if we sow hatred toward others, quite often we will reap a response of hatred in return. If we sow loving attitudes toward others, we will often reap a loving reaction from them as a result. If we bless others, they tend to bless us. If we help others, they tend to help us. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes people take advantage of your kindness. Sometimes it may not appear to return to you. You may be persecuted instead. And certainly that's true in countries where Christianity is suppressed. But this is a general rule. If you sow immorality in your life, you're going to reap the breaking apart of relationships with those that you betray through that sin. There's so many ways that Galatians 6-7 is fulfilled. And so that seems to be in alignment with the idea of karma, and yet it breaks away from that concept when you dig into the depths of what it teaches. Because, by the way, karma is based on the idea of reincarnation. And in Hinduism, you're reincarnated over a million times before you reach perfection. 
Well, praise God, the Bible teaches just one life, just one life. And that gives infinite value to each individual. The next kind of yoga that I want to focus on is mantra yoga. We know Jesus definitely did not teach hatha yoga. He definitely did not teach karma yoga. Well, what about mantra yoga? That is a type of yoga that teaches the repetitious chanting of various Hindu or Sanskrit phrases or words in order to attain oneness with God. The classic one that most people know about is the word Om, which is actually stretched out in pronunciation when the meditator uses that word. It's more like A-U-M. And as it sounded over and over again, it's actually an invocation. See, the A represents Brahma, the creator God. The U represents Vishnu, the preserver God. And the M represents Shiva, the destroyer God. And when you chant this over and over again, it's actually an invocation first for Brahman to manifest in you so that you become one with Brahman. It's taught that that word is the original sound that accompanied the manifestation of the universe. So when you chant it over and over again, you come into that vibratory level. And it's also an invocation to individual deities to manifest and exhibit intervention in your lives or involvement in your lives. Well, did Jesus teach mantra yoga? Absolutely not. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he said, Use not vain repetitions like the heathen do, for they believe that they will be heard for their much speaking. I often have quoted Mahatma Gandhi, who was a Hindu and a Jainist, kind of mixed together. And he said, and actually he was quoting a Christian when he said this, it's better in prayer to have a heart without words than words without a heart. I emphasize to others that chanting mantras is simply words without a heart. It's a monotone approach. What if you tried to approach a fellow human being that way? Suppose you wanted to borrow a car from a friend. Would you go and chant, I want to borrow your car hundreds of times? By the time you said it the third or fourth time, he would exit from the conversation immediately because he's an intelligent human being. One statement from you communicating your wish to him is sufficient to get a response. And God is far more intelligent than any human being. To treat him in such a mechanical way is an insult to the divine intelligence, to the genius of God. How absolute how absolutely absurd it is to approach God with chanting mantras. Did Jesus teach it? No, he taught against it. And yet many people involved in yoga teach that Jesus studied in India under the gurus and the swamis and the masters there in order to awaken his Christ nature by using these methods. Well, why did he come back to Israel if that were the case to only teach against that approach to enlightenment because he never assimilated something like that into his worldview. Number four, the fourth kind of yoga I want to touch on is bhakti yoga. B-H-A-K-T-I. Bhakti yoga is the yoga of devotion to an individual deity. Well, the traditional number in Hinduism is there are 330 million gods and goddesses to be worshipped. 
And of course, New Agers and Hindus teach that we as Christian believers are practicing bhakti yoga because we are simply devoted to an individual deity among hundreds of thousands, millions of other deities. No, Jesus was very much a believer in the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And the Bible says very clearly, it was a command from Mount Sinai, the first commandment of 10. He said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Eternally, he is the triune God made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus never had a beginning. In Micah 5, 2, it says, his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And the scripture declares plainly that he's always been and ever will be the image of the invisible God. He is not one among many, and we Christians are not practicing bhakti yoga by being devoted to him because he is the one true God, and there is no other but him. The next kind of yoga is jnana yoga, which is the yoga of knowledge. And it is esoteric knowledge. It's coming into enlightenment by understanding and comprehending these mysteries that are purported in Hindu scripture and other writings that are respected by those of that mindset and that worldview. Well, knowledge is important, but knowledge is not sufficient. Gnosticism is based on the idea that we do not need salvation from sin. We need knowledge. We need a supernatural kind of knowledge of an awakening of understanding that we already are one with God and that we do not have to do anything to achieve that oneness. We just recognize it. We need knowledge, not salvation, according to Gnosticism and according to other New Age approaches. Did Jesus teach that knowledge was important? Well, he put it this way in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So knowing God is far more important than knowing about God. And how can you know God? Only by going through the door. And Jesus said, I am the door. And by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And he said, no one can come to the Father but by me. So how do we obtain the knowledge of God? It is found in the Bible. And there's no other place that you can explore to find revelation knowledge outside of the scripture. Jesus did not teach jnana yoga as a means of salvation. Knowledge is not going to save you. A born-again experience is what will save you, and then once you're born again, you can come into revelation knowledge that will expand your understanding of God. But it's not a means of achieving enlightenment alone. The next kind of yoga I want to mention is Raja Yoga, and that's R-A-J-A. Raja Yoga is royal yoga, and it involves meditation primarily. But for a yogi involved in Raja Yoga, meditation means an emptying of your mind in order to obtain mystical experiences. But meditation biblically is not emptying your mind to enter the silence in order to obtain some kind of mystical supernatural awakening. Quite the contrary. Meditation within a biblical format is 
involving your mind or focusing your mind on the scripture. In fact, uh, God's command to Joshua was, let not this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do all according to what is written therein. So it involved focusing the mind on scripture and then, of course, the expectation that the Holy Spirit will grant you revelation insights by unveiling the meaning of those scriptures to you as you dwell on them prayerfully. That's what Christian meditation is. Number seven is tantric yoga, which is a very unique approach to yoga. Now, no true Christian would ever be involved in the pursuit of enlightenment through sexual practices, which is exactly what tantric yoga is all about. Quite the contrary, the Bible teaches against fornication, adultery, incest, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, and any other aberrant sexual behavior. Jesus taught monogamy. However, tantric yoga teaches the possibility of achieving enlightened states of mind through sexual intercourse, often with partners who are socially forbidden. The Bible teaches that those who participate in that kind of sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. The final kind of yoga that I want to focus on is kundalini yoga, which is supposed to be an amalgamation of all the other yogas that I've just mentioned. Kundalini yoga is focused primarily on the awakening of the kundalini. What is that? It is taught within Hinduism that the kundalini is a coiled energy at the base of the spine, coiled like a serpent that is in a dormant state. And through hatha yoga, through jnana yoga, through raja yoga, through various yogic practices, pranayama and asanas, that this power, this kundalini power, which incidentally means serpent power, can be awakened and it travels up through the chakras, through the spine, to the crown chakra and the third eye, and the person involving himself or herself in this kundalini yoga practice will then merge with the oversoul and come into God consciousness, which is, in that worldview, a conscious awareness that you are God which is the absolute antithesis of the truth. Would Jesus have ever taught a serpent power being awakened within you? Absolutely not. He taught that men and women had to be born again, which involves the Holy Spirit entering into you from without, not a latent serpent power being awakened from within. It is a completely different approach at opposite ends of the pole. There's no way you can reconcile those two beliefs. Jesus taught the washing away of sin by the blood that he shed on the cross. When he passed the cup at the Last Supper, he said, this is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. He did not teach a dormant divinity within every human being called the Kundalini. So did Jesus teach his disciples yoga? I have to respond with absolutely not. So what will my conclusion be? There's no better way of ending this teaching than to quote 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, 
where Paul wrote these words, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.